I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host, Craig, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Mr. Brett Rutherford. Hello there. And Miss Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. We also have a very special guest joining us today to talk about what I feel like is a very underrated film. We'll find out what our other co-hosts think about that uh, as we get closer to here. But we do have from the Tomorrow Society podcast, Dan Heaton. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This is fun. Absolutely. As they say in the movie, dreamers have to stick together. So we have to, uh, it's so nice to have you on. And I should mention, I absolutely love your show. What's cool about this um, area of content creation that we have within the Disney community is that there's so many different ways you can talk about the theme parks or the movies. Uh, There's so many different great content creators out there. And we've had the chance to talk to so many of them. And your podcast is one of my favorites to listen to. Actually, I was just listening to it today. Now, at the time we released this, uh, this will be an older episode for you. So it was episode 133 for you, but you were kind of reimagining Tomorrowland. And it was interesting how often the Tomorrowland film came up in those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting that we're recording this the same day that that came out. That was not planned, but that was serendipity. But um, yeah, usually, you know, I'm doing interviews. I've really, you know, love the interview format in general, just because like shows like Fresh Air or Mark Marin or even some Disney shows like Luma Jello does great interviews or the season pass. But for this episode that I that came out today, I was kind of looking at Tomorrowland and like in Disneyland's Tomorrowland, which is a little shaky at times and what ways we can improve it and took a bunch of listener input and everything on it. So it was really fun. But yeah, a lot of the ideas relate to people saying, wow, I really like what they did with Tomorrowland. Wouldn't it be fun if they did something with Plus Ultra and everything else that we'll talk about soon? So it was fun to kind of get into that beyond just Star Wars and Marvel and bring back the people mover and some of the other usual ideas. Absolutely. Now you just said it was 133 episodes. So obviously you have a passion for this. What brought about the idea of bringing uh, a Tomorrowland centric podcast? I know you do cover other areas of the parks as well, but what about Tomorrowland? Is it that made you decide to invest this much time and energy and passion into this project? Well, I mean, I think in general, for me, it's not even as much about Tomorrowland. The Tomorrow Society idea was kind of, I grew up going to Disney World in the 1980s as a kid, and I was really connected with Epcot Center then and with Tomorrowland, but really the name kind of relates to just me being really drawn to kind of the futuristic side of Walt Disney World, the monorail, the people mover, the spaceship birth, all of that. And it was more just those are things I started it as a blog. I was like, I'm going to write kind of about things I enjoy, whether it's Epcot or things about Disney World, and then was doing a few interviews for that and then kind of thought, well, maybe I can start a podcast that would sort of relate to that, but it's kind of morphed in a way where it was more focused, more on Epcot and futuristic and stuff. But now it's as much I've been able, lucky as you have to have some really cool guests that were former Imagineers and, 
you know, other experts. I kind of think of it just as I, I love talking to smart people about theme parks. So it, it ends up being a wide range of topics. It kind of started more with that futuristic zone and it's kind of expanded to where I'm talking about all different types of people, whether it's looking towards the history or even what's happening right now. Now, this is probably the hardest question you'll be asked all day long, but you do have so many wonderful hours of content out there. Are there particular episodes that you might want to point somebody to if they hadn't listened to Tomorrow Society podcast before and say, you know, if you want to know what the show is all about, listen to these couple of episodes or these interviews. I know probably much like us, you are so grateful to get these amazing guests to talk about their experiences. So I don't want you to pick a favorite interview, but maybe just like a, an interview or two that you would point someone to to say this is a good starting point. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to think, too, that as I've done it, I mean, I've gotten better as far as interviewing. But the ones that I enjoy the most are ones with people that maybe aren't as well known in the Disney community. Like, they're people that amazingly worked on so many cool things as Imagineers, but they're not always the household names, which, you know, everyone knows. I haven't talked to them, but everyone knows, like, Joe Rody, Tony Baxter, those types of people. But there's others that have done just crazy things. So I would even say... Some of my really recent shows, I did one with Daniel Joseph, who currently works for Disney and is like basically considered like the heir to Yale Gracie. He's like a he does special effects and like I wouldn't say magic tricks that would kind of undercut it. But a lot of things with Haunted Mansion, he did the Hatbox Ghost at Disneyland. He was very involved with that. And then right after I did one with Jim Clark, who was like the lead designer on the new Tokyo Beauty and the Beast Dark Ride. So those are fresh in my brain because they're two of the more recent ones, but I feel like both of them are people that are working on things now. Cause it's a lot of mine. I'll be like, Oh, you worked on the American adventure or you worked on imagination or something 30 years ago or something, but it's really fun too, for me now to talk about people that are working on things that happened a year ago or six months ago and also deserve a lot more attention. So I really enjoy being able to talk with people that are as good or better or have done amazing things, amazing artists, but don't have the same level of interest in the fan community. I think that's really cool. Well, what I love about that too, is that you give them the opportunity to have it so fresh in their mind. You know, Jim just got done with this a year's worth of work. And now he can talk about that. It's a way of almost giving like a, an oral history of how that process went from someone that really is living through it still to this day. So we do a lot of um, looking back and of course, amazing interviews with people like Bob Gurr or even Tom Morris, who uh, have done so many things for the company, but you know, it's cool to get it in the moment. So it's, it's really nice that you are pointing those Imagineers out, those new names, like you said, that really do deserve that recognition. And again, I can't recommend your podcast enough. And especially, I loved that episode 133. Um, it was great to, to listen to this morning because we are talking about the Tomorrowland film and to kind of reimagine uh, what we would want to do. Some armchair Imagineering uh, of Tomorrowland in Disneyland. So I would definitely point people to that. I will 
will say one more thing before we get into the film proper. We were mentioning this before we jumped on, but it's so nice to have a Midwest podcaster. So you're in the St. Louis area. Uh, so we are so used to having to schedule uh, East Coast and Eastern time zone uh, interviews and episodes or West Coast. We had to figure out what, what time zone Hawaii is on one time, uh, which by the way, they have their own uh, time zone. But it's so nice to be right here, central time zone uh, with you. It's so nice to have you so close to Springfield here. Yeah, it is really rare. Yeah, I had someone in London, and I'm so used to recording at 9 p.m. here, so that it's evening for the people on the West Coast, and it's 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 really rare. Even just, I mean, there are a few others in um, weather in Springfield, like um, Wedway Radio and um, 3028, but or be our guest in St. Louis. But it's very there's not a huge because so many people are in where the parks are. Because mm-hmm. that's what they yeah. do, and they're going to go to the parks and everything. And I'm so jealous of people that are able <laughs> to do that. But I still, it is fun to kind of interact with someone who's kind of in a similar boat where we're looking a little more from afar at what's going on at the resorts. Now, they may have the parks, but we have Marceline. So have you yes. traveled to Marceline yourself? Yeah, I had never been there until a couple of years ago. Like, it's one of those I always meant to go. And then we went, I think it was 2018, I think, in the summer with my daughters. We went and drove there for a day. It's like a three hours from St. Louis. And the museum there is incredible. It's, I mean, it's a lot. I went kind of thinking, oh, it'd be cool to see the school and to see the park and to see some of the things where Walt was. But the museum there is like, especially if you're not able to get, I have not been to the Walt Disney Family Museum in California, but this is kind of maybe not on that scale, but there are a lot of similarities and it's, it's a real gem and they do such a good job there. It's called the Walt Disney Hometown Museum. Absolutely. Uh, and Brett, you went there not too long ago and you just yeah. sing its praises. It was great. I can't wait to go again, you know, when, when, when our winter weather is over, you know, here in the Midwest, so. which could be <laughs> any does. day now, please, please, please. So, I say yeah, it does so. seem a bit more like spring every single yeah, day. So yeah. <laughs> um, we can do this again at the end as well, but do you want to tell people how to find you? Uh, and then that way we can dive right into the movie after that. Sure. Yeah. The easiest way is just to go to tomorrowsociety.com. I mentioned that I do some writing there too, but, um, and you can find all the podcasts there. I'm also on all the various, you know, Apple podcast, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, all the various places. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, tomorrow SOC, all the places there. So it's hard not to see me somewhere if you're looking. So just search for tomorrow society podcast. Absolutely. So let's go in and talk about Tomorrowland, the 2015 film. Again, I didn't want to bury the lead right at the beginning. This is one of what I would say is one of the more underrated films to come out, specifically in the last decade. But really, this is a film that didn't necessarily take off uh, like the um, company would have liked it to. It had some amazing writers uh, in Damon Lindelof, who, of course, brought us Lost and, and now Watchmen as well. Uh, also, Brad Bird, who we know from things like The Iron Giant and, of course, The Incredibles and just these amazing stories that he's brought us as well. Uh, and so we can get into that a little bit, maybe later on, what necess- what didn't work for this film and, and why it didn't uh, take off as they would have liked it to. But first, we always do kind of our first impressions where were you when you first saw this film or what were the, the first things that came to mind when seeing this film? And Dan, you are our guest. So I will start with you. 
Yeah, well, I went and saw this movie in the theaters when it came out in 2015, not knowing much about it because we'll get into it, but their marketing campaign was not that specific. It was kind of, you're going to meet find Tomorrowland and George Clooney is in it. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And I remember being blown away by it and thinking, this is going to be a big hit. Wow, this is, I mean, again, I'm coming at it as a Disney fan who's into the parks and into also, like I mentioned, Epcot and Tomorrowland and everything. So I'm really in that zone. But I remember really enjoying it, just thinking it was fun. And also it wasn't, you know, I'd seen things like the Haunted Mansion movie and some of the other examples that were not so great. So I was really impressed that something with like a name like Tomorrowland that is going to be tied to the parks seemed to be cool on its own. And then quickly discovered that not everyone shared that opinion, like with critics and especially with the box office, it did not do what I expected. Absolutely. Vanessa, what was your uh, initial thoughts when viewing Tomorrowland for the first time? Well, um, so I, I remember watching it for the first time, but I remember not watching the whole thing. Um, I, I remember just wanting to get back to Tomorrowland and this whole nonsense about her being in a cornfield or wheat field. I was like, get me out of the Midwest and get me back into Tomorrowland. And I remember stopping and watching it. And I don't know why I didn't go back because on this, this most recent viewing, I started watching it. I'm like, this is really good. Oh, this I don't remember small worlds. That's really cool. And then I just as it went on, and then we now we see and we see Catherine Hahn in it. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because of WandaVision. I was more, you know, interested in what she was gonna do. I'm like, maybe it's Ag- <laughs> I even texted Craig. I'm like, is it Agatha all along? Um so so I really enjoyed it this this last uh, go around. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking all those years ago. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's funny because I came to it and I really enjoyed this film right away and was kind of um, dismayed by seeing the critical reaction to it and then also seeing the audience reaction to it. You know, I at the time, I didn't think that a lot of that was fair. <laughs> you know, it's one of those where I'm like, come on, uh, this is such a in uh, what I like about this movie is that it does. Uh, do a good job of not necessarily tying itself to an attraction. We've had Pirates of the Caribbean, which of course was wildly successful, at least for the the first couple of movies. And then also the Haunted Mansion, which was wildly unsuccessful, right? And then this, this kind of more tied it to the thought that Disney brings to the idea of Tomorrowland and Walt's vision of uh, a tomorrow that maybe never will be, uh, but an aspirational feeling in that mid-century, mid-20th century feeling of Tomorrowland. Um, and I, I really appreciated how it explored that idea and put us specifically watching it again for this podcast you are plopped right into the 1964 World's Fair. So as a Disney fan, how do you not love this film? And I know that there's not maybe as many of us out there as we think there are when it, in terms of just hardcore parks fans. But uh, I was a little bit dismayed about the, the critical response to this. I remember really enjoying this film. We did go see it in the movie theaters. Um, and then I actually went back and saw it in the drive-in here in town as well, because it was one of those things where I just really enjoyed 
the story that came from it. And I was excited to see more because you don't sign George Clooney to a, maybe a one picture deal. I I would assume that this was going to be some kind of franchise or that they would hope uh, to have follow-ups to this. Uh, And of course that is likely never going to happen at this point. Uh, I guess it still could, but when you lose a hundred million dollars probably makes it a little less likely that that would ever happen. But Brett, what were your first reactions to this film? Well, I had the opportunity to see Tomorrowland while I was at Disneyland. And not only just at Disneyland, I was at Disneyland's 60th anniversary um, that weekend because that was the that was the weekend of the 24 hour, you know, <laughs> my first sleep on the floor. Well, you know, overnight sort of waiting to get into the parks and all that. And I was, you know, so basically between Thursday and Saturday morning, I was up as it turns out for like 36 hours. So then I, so I, uh, and it was great. Okay. I knew about Tomorrowland. I couldn't, I knew that I was going to go to the AMC in downtown Disney and see it because I like to see Disney movies at Disneyland. And then I had the opportunity to do it. So, um, so after I slept on Saturday, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see it. In fact, you know, the Tomorrowland pin, which is very important to this story, um, was very, you know, it was Disney Disneyland's 60th anniversary, but the pin was selling out in Tomorrowland and it was really, really, really hard to get. I didn't have a chance to get it, but I'm like going, I really would like to. So anyway, so I slept for, you know, a few hours and got up and went to AMC at downtown Disney and saw Tomorrowland. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, part of me thinks, you know, a lot of times when I'm really, really tired and 36 hours at Disneyland will do it to you. Um, I was up for 36 hours. I, yeah, so I was technically in the parks for 24 hours. Um, But anyway, but anyway, um, generally speaking, my enjoyment go, my enjoyment level goes down if I'm tired. So, um, so I kind of giving it that. But I'm with the critics and the general public thinking that this was not what I had hoped it would be there. And I'm sure we're going to go into other things. I just want to, I do want to let you know, because I'm trying to be, you know, because we have a guest and and three of the four of us apparently love this film. And so I'm going to be really, really, really polite to this. So I'm only going to, well, let me go back for in preparing for this podcast. I did spend $3.99 to rent um, uh, Tomorrowland on iTunes. Um, I, when I, I saw that, you know, you could buy it for $19.99 and you had the extras and the extras look really, really good, but I'm not going to buy this movie. I would like to, <laughs> anyway, so, so that's that. So, okay, so $3.99. So I start watching the movie. I get to a point and I'm like going, yep. Nope. I'm like going, so I'm hoping that Apple enjoyed the $3.99 more than I enjoyed this movie. Can I ask a question, Brett? Because I wouldn't say that I love this movie. I just thought it was much better than what I remembered. But what point did you say nope? Because I'm wondering if it was a similar part where I'm like, this is, I wish they would get back to Tomorrowland already. That's a big, that's a big point. I mean, we, you know, he gets to the world's 
fair and we're, I'm, 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 we're, I'm sort of moving away through the other things, but let's see this time around to be very, very pure. We go into George Clooney in his first, um, probably one of his first cranky old man roles. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And so, you know, I'm telling my story. Well, you tell, okay. And then we get to her story and I'm like, going, I'm done. I'm done. I'm oh, 20 pretty, minutes into this. That's pretty I'm, early in the film. Then. I'm 20 <laughs> minutes into this and I can't possibly take it. I'm just going to be really, really polite and talk about the things that I like. <laughs> okay. And you know, you're okay. It's okay to not like this film. In fact, um, it's, it's one of the- I'm the one who likes films. Disney stuff always. And I'm like going, oh, not always. It's 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 one of those films that uh, actually the critics and the audience agree, at least in terms of Rotten Tomato scores. Sometimes you see such divergent uh, film scores, uh, but the Rotten Tomato scores is at 50 uh, for critics and 49% for uh, audiences. So certainly, you know, again, I, I wonder if I'm seeing this through the eyes and I know you are a super fan too, Brad. I'm not saying you're not. I, I wonder if I, if I put on some rose tinted glasses on this because it is one of my favorite parks and one of my favorite lands. Uh, and I, I love the idea of expanding upon that mythology of the parks, whether that's Disney sea or whether that's Tomorrowland and Plus Ultra, whatever the case may be. But let's go ahead and start to shift because obviously we'll come back to your criticisms of it or your uh, thoughts on the film. I certainly want to get that opinion and that uh, and highlight that as well because that is the general public. That's where they're at. Um, but I want to continue to move on and kind of talk about our actors here. And I think you started it with grumpy old man, George Clooney uh, as Frank and Dan, I wanted to get your take on what you thought of Clooney's role in this. Obviously one of the most recognizable largest named movie stars ever. Disney has kind of a history of, of trying to build, especially like looking at Marvel, they grab names that will bring people to the theater, but they're not necessarily superstar mega names yet. Or maybe they were and they've, their time might have faded a little bit. But this is like, I mean, you don't get much bigger than George Clooney. So your thoughts on him uh, in this role? You know, I think he's good, though. Um, you know, he's really, he's not in a lot of it. You know, I think when he shows up, the movie kind of takes, you know, he's in the very beginning, like you mentioned, Brett. And then, you know, a lot of it is really the story of Casey, who's, you know, an actress, Britt Robertson, who we don't know as well. But I think he's solid at what he can do there. He's very grumpy at times. There's a lot of sniping back and forth. But it's it's not really a star vehicle. And I also, you know, wonder, too, because he's playing kind of a character who's very important to the story but essentially is there to kind of guide her along and where I think that's great. And it works, works out for the story. I think he's got a good presence because, you know, he shows up like, Oh, George Clooney's here. Okay. But it's, it's a different type of role for him. He's not the leading man. He's not the, you know, romantic lead. He's not even just like the centerpiece. And I think that could, be a little different for him and i i think he's a good actor i think he does a good job here but also too it is a different situation where he's thinking so much of what he's acting towards relates to something that he experienced as a kid that we didn't really see because it's a lot of relating to his kind of grumpiness and anger and 
love for you know um the an android auto audio animatronic so it's a tricky role for him there's a lot we don't see on the page that he has to bring out yeah you know that's a really good point and and it kind of um one of the things i thought uh and maybe this is requesting more of this movie than the audience would allow for but we now live in a world where we're going to be getting a Disney Plus show all about uh, some Magic Kingdom properties. And I wonder if this would have worked better in that format, um, because then we could have seen Frank and sort of how um, the cynicism kind of takes hold. And, and the, to me, this movie is so much more about uh, a optimistic view versus a cynical view of the world. Um, especially uh, painted between Casey and then uh, Hugh Laurie's character, Nix, and and also um, George Clooney's character, Frank. Uh, And you're right. We don't necessarily see how that transition happens for Frank. We we don't get to see the, we kind of see the glamorous side of Tomorrowland and the World's Fair and him going on Small World and then Small World turning into like this like secret attraction. Um, you know, we get to see all that fun stuff, but we don't really see what, uh, what changed in all of that. We don't get, the next time we see Tomorrowland to Vanessa's point, we're, we're going through a, a Midwest cornfield and we end up in uh, Tomorrowland, which is just decimated. So um, I, I do wonder if there was a more of a backstory that we could have gotten in, in more of a franchise of this um, than we did. So Vanessa, what are your thoughts though on Clooney's character to kind of bring it back? I know we're talking about a lot of characters there. Sorry, I'm cheating, but uh, what about Clooney? Oh, in yeah, this you're film? pulling you're pulling a real Brett here talking about all the characters all at once, but um, you know, I thought George Clooney was, was fine. He, he, he did a good job. Um, I don't, I don't think there's really any actor in this film that blows me away with their performance, except for maybe young, the young George Clooney character, the young boy. Um, because really the star of the show for me is the set design um that that's what and and yeah really yeah the set design and even in George Clooney's house and the technology that's what had me wanting to watch more and more um in fact where they lost me is when when we go like we go to those midwest parts where I'm like okay I've seen it wheat feel soy feel alternate soy and corn we get it you know (laughs) (laughs) so uh but yeah George Clooney was great um I don't know what else more to say about it. He's just did a solid job. And, you know, I think I would defend the grumpy old man persona that he gives here because you have to be able to try to present to him an arc, right? So we get him as um, this boy who is building rocket packs and, and wants to get so involved in science at the 64 World's Fair. Then he gets to go to Tomorrowland and he gets to see that amazing society. Um, and then he's brought back to the real world and knowing that that society is crumpling from within, he does turn cynical and he has his countdown clock that everything is going to, uh, there's going to be a a time here where everything uh, starts to crumble and go away in the society we're all living in. Um, And what I like about it is that you do see that grumpy, cynical side of him. And I think they probably could have done better with the payoff at the end of bringing him more back to the optimistic side. You see it a bit when you find out that he's uh, really 
addressing the next generation of Athenas uh, before sending them off into the world to make the world a better place. But I do think you probably could have gotten a bit more of that in the character. But Brett, uh, did you have any other comments on Clooney? I know you mentioned him a little bit before. I think, you know, you're expecting kind of, I mean, just kind of the gravitas that he would bring. Ooh, this is George Clooney. So, you know, his lines and his, and if he's grumpy, he must be grumpy for a reason. And, you know, yes, there is this countdown clock. So he knows, oh, you know, it's, it, it's inevitable. You know, this is sort of this very sort of pessimistic um, sort of view. And that I think um, they use it kind of as a shortcut when they shouldn't have. You know, there's a, I think there's a possibility if you think that this is going to be a franchise, make the first one good so you have a reason to come back. And, yeah. you know, oops, sorry. Um, but I think that, you know, he was, and he's even said this, you know, like with the film that it was out this year, you know, that he was, you know, grizzled and, you know, looks like 120 and all this sort of stuff. And, well, you can't be a leading man forever and all this sort of stuff. So that he, I mean, he used this as a, as a transitional piece, you know, and so it's possible that, that as an actor, you know, he didn't want to have the largest role in this so he could be grumpy old man and this is the new me and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm trying to sell this to the public and and they, you know, they bought it because he keeps doing this part now. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a lot of these types of roles. I want to dive into Britt Robertson because she is our tr- true lead in this. Uh, even though when you go to IMDb, she's listed third. Uh, she, Casey is really who we're following. And Casey is that picture of optimism that young Frank has passed on the mantle to her. Um, she doesn't want the NASA platform taken down. So she's going to stop it from happening because she needs that scientific discovery. She's the person that is going to lead us into bringing back Tomorrowland and that society, that picturesque society that we get to see at the beginning of the film. So Dan, your thoughts on Casey. Yeah, I think, like I mentioned earlier, she's really the centerpiece of the movie in terms of the character, because one, you you know, you have where she's in class and all the teachers are just going on and on about gloom and doom. And, and she's got her hand up like, hey, um, can we fix it? And that's, you know, I think that makes it a challenge, too, though, because I feel like she does a good job as much as she can. I mean, this is a another thing I wanted to mention, too. It's like this is a PG movie that's really as much like a road movie than a sci-fi movie where it's like we're taking a journey with her. And I think we start out and we have so much with the World's Fair and with everything like that. But really, the primary part of the story is that middle act where she's on the road and she's trying to find George Clooney and she goes to the comic book store and with Catherine Hahn and all the craziness and as much, I mean, whether we like the movie or not is a lot going to be based on her because she's, you know, arguing with George Clooney and getting frustrated and not knowing what's going on. I think it works, but I think a lot of it depends on whether we're on board with her story and how she can make things work and how she's trying to be more positive. If we don't want to spend that time with her, then it's not going to really work. So for me, it works because I feel like, you know, also I'm very interested in the space program. So she wants to save that. And her dad works at NASA and it's, I mean, it's right down the middle, but that's not everybody. So I think a lot of it is how do you connect with her? I feel like it's a tricky part for someone to do, but she 
does a good job at least in keeping us kind of on board for the show, especially when she goes to the Tomorrowland. That's the, the advertisement Tomorrowland. Like she has to really sell that because that's like the most flashy kind of exciting shot of the city. We get the whole time in the movie. Yeah. Brett, uh, as someone that didn't connect necessarily with this, what is your thoughts on uh, Casey's road story here? She did the best she could do with a very convoluted storyline. Okay. (laughs) You know, I felt for her, but I felt for the actress too. Oh gosh. What are you going to do when you see this? Are you going to take it off your resume? Sorry. Oh my goodness. Wow. I'm being nice. Remember. (laughs) Vanessa, we better go to you. Yeah. Quick, quick pan over to me. So you don't see Brett's eye rolling. Um, (laughs) You know, it, it's it's hard as a non-film actor to give a critique of what I thought I could have been, what I thought could have been better. Um, I will say, just from my own emotions, again, like I said before, none of the actors really blew me away except for the little boy. I thought he really sold that opening scene, like when he gets in the the time traveling elevator or whatever but he becomes um, the rocketeer it was great yeah and then he becomes a rocketeer and i was like craig you have you have a a pattern of films that you (laughs) like i have a Um, very i have a very distinct type of film yeah anything where a a, some boy straps on a rocket i'm there for sign me up you love it so uh and i was like oh craig's just trying to trick us into watching the rocketeer again um but (laughs) (laughs) with this film but um you know i i again i just I don't know what would have been better. It didn't thrill me, but I thought she did a good job with what she had to as just, um, I'm not really getting into the storyline or the character development, but just her acting as, as a whole. Um, I thought, I thought she did fine. It's I, I did wonder when I was watching her, I'm like, have I seen her before? And I did look through her films, nothing. I mean, she has gone on to make several, just nothing that I have seen personally. So um, obviously others thought she did a good job too. And this is uh, that's that to me, that's classic Disney casting is uh, someone that they want to build into a star. And again, I imagine that this would have been, what they would have thought of as a franchise. Uh, There are two other actors I want to get through. Uh, And then of course, you've already alluded to the fact that Agatha is in this, uh, Catherine (laughs) Hahn, also Keegan-Michael Key is in this. This is kind of like where he was starting to really take off as a film actor, because of course, Key and Peele had uh, such a great run on television up to this point, Um, but he's starting to make that transition into that as well. Should mention Thomas Robinson is the name of the young Frank Walker. So you've mentioned him a couple of times but I do want to talk about, we have to talk about Hugh Laurie. And I also want to talk about, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. It's either uh, Rafi Cassidy or Rafi Cassidy. I don't know if either of you know, uh, any of you know the the pronunciation, but it's R-A-F-F-E-Y. So it's a hard name to, pronu- to pronounce, but let's talk about Hugh Laurie here as our villain. And I think a lot of the critique when the movie came out, I remember the critique being, they had me and I went along with them on this story until the end, um, particularly with Hugh Laurie's portrayal of kind of the sinisterness of that almost like cynicism embodied. Um, they, they didn't necessarily go along with the ride for that. So actually I want to start Hugh Laurie with Brett, um, because I think that you might have a good, uh, we might be able to rebut some of the things you say maybe is what I'm setting up here. 
Oh, really? So you're right and I'm wrong. No, um, no, this is about opinions. So now all opinions matter. So uh, um, I think that I would have, I would have cast someone else um, who did not bring kind of this, because his characters are rather, he, he kind of plays a type that's, you know, that is very cynical and, you know, but kind of in a funny sort of way. And, you know, maybe they're trying to, you know, work on the PG uh, atmosphere for this, you know, bringing him. But I think that they needed a villain. And I don't think he's a villain. I think he's, I, um, I don't think he's, uh, I think you needed someone either that you did not know that, that could be, um, you know, meaner um, and play a villain. Um, and, and that was, the, talk about eye rolls, Vanessa. When I started watching this again, and, and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm like going. Oh, you're um, our grumpy old man, Brett. We, we, have done, we have done 100 episodes, and I cannot believe, um, you know, I have never heard you react to this uh, way to a movie before. At least maybe one, not, maybe because I, we don't I, cover I, those movies that you want to talk about. I have strong feelings, you know. I don't love, I love I love everything Disney and I don't like this. <laughs> so I'm like going, that kind of tells you something, you know? Well, I will say, I think that the casting of Lori here is, uh, in my mind, it sets it up, so, it's up very well because, of course, he's coming off his most successful role uh, in-house and that that show is based completely on cynicism and the idea of cynicism. I mean, that's, he saves people through being this crotchety uh, old man who uh, has a horrible outlook in the world, but happens to be like a superhero when it comes to medicine. Right. And so I almost feel like this is uh, on paper, ideal casting. I think that like you were saying, Brett, um, maybe in some of the execution of it, uh, it, it doesn't come across that way. I, I don't know. I would push back on the idea that he needs to be meaner. I think, um, maybe the character needs to be fleshed out a bit more. And again, maybe well, we need to be fault. given more. <laughs> again, um, but not his fault. Yeah. But, uh, but Dan, your thoughts on Hugh Laurie's Knicks. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, I do think, I mean, it is a PG movie. So I think they're only going to go so far with him being super nasty, I guess. But to the point you brought up, Craig, the, um, the speech because that came up in a lot of critics reviews where they really it was almost like the idea that Hugh Laurie's speech at the end was directed immediately at critics or at people that were audiences like he was basically saying like it was Brad Bird saying to them you need to be more optimistic and hitting them over the head with it and saying it's your fault because you like the walking dead or, you know, world war Z or whatever, that this is all you, but, and I understand that completely. However, but I think that he's also the villain of the movie. So you have someone who the movie is basically fighting against and saying, Hugh Laurie, doc Nick's you are wrong. So he gives a speech. So I, I always look at that speech as him being like, no, He's incorrect, but um, I know I'm veering off a bit from the Hugh Laurie, actually what he did as an actor, but I feel like that's something where I think that speech was probably a little heavy handed and a little too obvious and that hurt it. 
But I don't know. I wouldn't blame you, Lori, because like you mentioned with House, he's someone who, to me, has a presence. Like, mm-hmm. he can come out and be the worst is if they cast someone like generic 40-ish, 50-ish guy. And you're like, I don't even remember who that is. But to me, if I look at characters that stand out the most in this movie or actors that stand out, I mean, he's up there because he... I, mean, I guess it stands out in a bad way for a lot of people, but he basically, he has a, all you have to do is see him for a minute and him being like, so does the jetpack work? And you know who that guy is. And that's you, Lori, to make you know who that is without having to do anything. You know, I, that's such a good point because uh, I, this morning I did two things. I listened to Tomorrow Society podcast, one, and two, I watched the original animated Aladdin with my son. And we talked about this when we covered the live action remake of Aladdin, the character or the actor they put, and I honestly, I don't even remember his name. Um, the actor that they put as Jafar uh, to me was way not mean enough you know he didn't come off the page um and be terrifying much like we get in the animated film and so it was such a letdown for me uh so i can understand exactly that uh i I find the two almost like analogous in my mind now um from what you're saying because i think that uh you do have to have that certain amount of gravitas to your name if you're not going to have as much of the character backstory along with you, um, or it just doesn't come off as a, a great villain. Brett, you've had something. Well, and, and Vanessa, I don't know. I mean, you were a communication major as well, but we study about um, bundle communication bundles, and there, um, and and so we we create bundles. Um, uh, based on our experiences. So our Hugh Laurie bundle um, is this kind of snarky, but funny, but snarky sort of thing. And so going into this, we have our um, Hugh Laurie bundle. So we know, oh, this is the, he's doing this again. So it doesn't, it doesn't depend on the writing. It doesn't depend on this. We, you know, he's playing the character that we know him to play. So we're, you, you know, we're using our bundle communication theory as a shortcut to that, which I'm like going is kind of lazy. It's kind of lazy from a storytelling, um, you know, standpoint, but we'll talk about Brad Bird. All right. All right. Vanessa, uh, any thoughts on Hugh Laurie? Um, I, I'm hearing, I'm hearing what you're all saying. <laughs> and I, I, I do feel like that, um, I could have had a few scenes of it, of his build up to becoming the bad guy, um, fleshed out just a little more. You know, I have watched house and some of my favorite um, episodes are where he, his personality is, is is becomes more than just cynical where he really struggles with love and compassion and things like that um and and Hugh Laurie has the chops to do it but he does definitely have this stereotype so you know I think he did fine I I could have used a little more from the film itself but I don't know if I would have changed him or not 
All right. All right. Fair enough. Do we want to talk about Athena a bit uh, before we get into talking about the production design or the scenes that we did enjoy, if any, Brett, uh, and all of that? So, Dan, any thoughts? I I just wanted to throw her in the mix because she really is our fourth. Um, You know, she's playing an android in this. Uh, We do get a very emotional scene with her, uh, sort of depending on what lens you're looking through, sort of an awkwardish scene uh, between her and Frank at the end. But your thoughts on Athena, Dan? Yeah, I think she's good. I think, again, um, the most notable thing is almost when she actually gets into the action scenes and just starts flopping all over the place and really taking charge, especially in the comic book shop. But I, you know, I don't have a strong, I'm not going to make it to oversell it and say that, you know, the actress is amazing or whatnot, but I think does what the movie intends for her to do, which is basically she kind of comes in as, and we see her from the boy's perspective of kind of, Oh, this is this helpful person that I like. And then quickly kind of shifts as we go along. But I think, I think she's again, I think so much of your impression is based on whether or not you are on board for the story so basically she's a really important part of the story as we see with flashbacks and what led to how you know frank basically evolved as a kid and stuff but you have to really fill in some of the gaps and i think that's a lot of it where we're seeing glimpses of what their life was like on tomorrowland and from her we can kind of see what's happening but it's it's limited because there's just so much the movie's trying to do in two hours yeah I can see that. And, you know, I um, do either of you have the uh, any other thoughts on uh, Athena? Uh, Brett, I loved I thought she was I thought she was great. You know, I'm like going (laughs) and I'm like going, well, if someone has to die, I get it. But It was just so sad. I'm like going, oh, she really does. I I wanted more. Yes, I want the. Oof, you're a fireworks. Um, <laughs> sing Carrie, Katy Perry song right here. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought um, I thought her uh, her characterizations were so cool, and you kind of find out, you know, that her abilities um, in a you know in fun ways that are just kind of well, this is a cute little girl from 1950 something. How could she be doing? Oh, you know, so that was fun. I enjoyed that. So you know and. My gosh, you know, or co- we'll talk about costuming and all that, but my gosh, could you have, she is a starched little girl with that dress that was mm-hmm. just at the beginning. I'm like going, but, you know, looked like it was from the future. But, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I thought she was, I thought she was great. And, you know, the touching moment at the end, I'm like going, oh, yeah, sad. Well, then- another reason to be sad. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, Vanessa, you uh, had talked a bit about the production design and everything. And so I think this is, you're a good transition point uh, to talk about Athena. And then also you mentioned that for you, this film is so much more about uh, design and the look of it. So can you talk about both of those things maybe? Because I I almost in a way uh, feel like Athena, because of the fact that she is an android, sometimes... um, it is almost like she is more part of the design of the movie more so than even acting in the movie, if that makes any sense, but go ahead, yeah. Vanessa. Well, real quick, just for the young lady or who is probably not a young lady anymore. Um, 
any time I could not do what she did if George Clooney was holding me. Let me just put it that way. And then I'm like, this this young lady's keeping a straight face, and George Clooney's holding her. Amazing. But um, <laughs> but yes, she is very much a piece of almost the set in the beginning. As a you know, something's a little off because while her dress is cut to like this A line 1950s style, the I think it was like the stitching in it is so retro and futuristic looking that you realize quickly something might be a little amiss here and she is like part of the the set there um especially when they go to future world so um and that is my favorite part of this film anytime whether it was the the advertising clips which actually that was probably my favorite those pools those bottomless pools that you just drop drop right out if you want to go into another pool you don't like that pool go drop into another pool that that that's cool i like that and i was i was looking at that thinking this is some real imaginative stuff um and i as i was watching that because it's pretty early in the film i thought oh what else are they going to show us that's really imaginative and i i don't know that we really get to see that fleshed out as much as i'd hoped but it's still really cool anytime that tomorrowland is in that scene um and and athena is there but athena did freak me out when she chases the truck and you think she's you think she's malfunctioning and then she comes at you with that terminator fearness that freaks me out i hate that movie terminator it's so terrifying to me so i'm like oh gosh here she comes she's gonna jump in the bed of the truck oh she did it you know, you just don't know if she's going to uh, come at her with a knife or not. I don't know. But anyway, yes, the the settings that are not the Midwest, I loved. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that this is where uh, maybe for me, some of the I'm able to forgive some of the missteps in the writing because of the production design and where they're putting us uh, into. I mean, I like again, you get to see the world's fair in a, in a movie uh, way. And, and it's just a little bit of time, Brett, but it's just a taste of it, right? Uh, but then we also get to see this imaginative Tomorrowland and they pan left and there's Space Mountain right there. You know, it's just like so many things that we can uh, latch onto. And, and again, little bits and pieces of these things that uh, I think may have come back uh had we been able to see another film and i I, but but dan you're our tomorrowland uh expert on this show and i want to ask you a question about your thoughts on um the production design and is this like when you dream of tomorrowland you just did this on one of your episodes when you reimagine tomorrowland in your mind how close to this depiction of tomorrowland is it Oh, it's up there for sure. I mean, you see the people mover type devices. You've got rockets going off, people shooting up in jetpacks. You've got robots. I mean, I could go on and on. I won't. But I think they did a really good job. I think the the really cool thing, I mean, you think about the movie had almost a $200 million budget and probably two-thirds of it, they're in a car or at a house. But the third that they're not, I mean, the money is on the screen. The World's Fair, I mean, the depictions of that are incredible. But the the scenes in Tomorrowland, first with the boy in the 1960s, and then especially with the what turns out to be the commercial, I mean, that like three minutes. And that's the thing where, like you mentioned, Craig, it's like we may be forgiving a bit because that's just like a 
so much on the screen, like just so much there. But to me, though, too, what I appreciate about it is, yes, there's computer generated animation at CGI, but this doesn't feel like the early Star Wars prequels or something where there's just yeah. all this digital stuff like Attack of the Clones are having this chase and it's like this looks like the fakest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. This does look yeah. real and yes. I think that that takes skill and yes this is 2015 versus 1999 or 2001 but still the fact that they made me think that's a real place and probably 95% of it is computer generated I mean, that's that's success, regardless of the rest. And I think, though, the problem, one last thing, is it is really front-loaded. And I think the first 30, 40 minutes is just bam, bam, bam. And then um, it, how, I, don't, I don't know what a movie would cost if we spent two hours in Tomorrowland, like a billion dollars or something, because it's so much. <laughs> but I think it's amazingly well done. Yeah, it's it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, and yeah. going back to those prequels, somebody broke the Revenge of the Sith for me and telling and saying, "Isn't it funny how often they're sitting on couches during their dialogue because they're just sitting in a green room screen, <laughs> the the everywhere." So uh, if you watch that movie again and notice how often they're just sitting around, um, it, it really uh, really breaks it for you. But Brett, okay, so. You I love, love the production design. I oh, love okay. the production design. So, if, so for you though, it didn't overcome the story that you didn't no, enjoy. It was it was what was missing. They're promising. I, they were promising me Tomorrowland, and I um, got that much of it, and I wanted to see more of it. If it took a billion, well, if it took a billion dollars, I'm like, well, again, it gets back to story. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't get to see it enough, and. The World's Fair, it is just a glimpse, but the Raleigh Crump designed, I, I was trying to find what, what it was, but the, um, it, it's the- The Tower of the Four Winds? Yes, yeah. thank you. The Tower of the Four Winds. I'm like going, just stay there for a moment. I mean, I just want with, to stay with on that. With that Sherman Brothers song playing in, you the, know, background. in the background. Gosh, that I'm gets like you going, every time. just- <laughs> Just put that some, you know, don't put it on a loop or anything, but let's just live there for about five minutes, you know, and just look at it as people walking by. Cause it'd be, it felt like, you know, you're in the parks, you know, you know and that yeah. was just so amazing. It's like the closest we will ever be to, to being there until, you know, some new technology comes out and we can go visit in the 1964 World's Fair. But that, and then also, please, you know, I mean, I was seeing this as I was at Disneyland and I'm like going, because I read, you know, before about, you know, filming at, at It's a Small World and I'm like going, how are they going to do that? And how's it going to look? And they have like the canopies and they have different costumes and all that sort of thing. And I'm just like going, so that was just so fun to watch. But, you know, being in Tomorrowland, I wanted to see more. And I'm like going, don't waste it on this little kid who was flying around in a backpack. I'm like, hey, going, let's hey, just hey. have an establishing <laughs> shot and just look at this for a while. Okay. <laughs> just, just pay it around. Just pay it around Tomorrowland. I just wanted lunch. like, this is what I came for. And I'm like going, I am seeing not enough of this. You know, and, and, and then to see it all destroyed. <sighs> 
That was more than I could take. It was, it was all destroyed. That's for sure. Uh, You know, I, I want to get back. I want to get to the critiques of the writing. And uh, you mentioned, you called uh, Brad Bird out uh, by name, but let's, let's keep going a little bit with maybe um, some of the favorite scenes that we enjoyed. And I, I think for us universally, um, that World's Fair scene really nailed it. Uh, maybe it wasn't quite long enough, but to me, it's so akin to when Walt goes to Disneyland in Saving Mr. Banks. It's like the same feeling that I get watching that scene. Uh, and now that's, that's a movie that I feel like um, the writing is considerably more executed in that film. Uh, but, the, but the idea of just going to uh, see Disneyland or to see the World's Fair, these are... Um, I, iconic things within Disney fandom, you know, the world's fair in 1964, we know how much that inspired Walt and how much Walt brought to that world's fair. And so it's something that's very personal for our Disney fans, I think. Um, and it, it's just really well done to be able to see bits and pieces of it. You know, we don't necessarily go into the Illinois pavilion and see great moments with Mr. Lincoln or anything, but you still get to see it's a small world. You know exactly what that is as a Disney fan. I do wonder if that's one of those scenes where uh, had they spent any more time in it, the general audience would not have really gotten it, you know, and I think that that might be almost like an Easter egg for fans, Um, but certainly one of my favorite scenes. Um, And, you know, this is probably controversial, but I enjoy the scenes where we get the, we get the narration and the voiceover. I like how they set us up. I like how I like the opening and closing of this film quite a bit, because again, it's that battle. It sets up that battle right away between cynicism and optimism. And in the end of the film, optimism wins in my mind. And so I enjoy, uh, I know a lot of people, I was watching a What's Wrong with Tomorrowland uh, that Cinema Sins did, and they do a pretty good job. They're, they're fairly cynical uh, folks over there, but they, they, um, they really didn't like that voiceover at the beginning, the narration. And, and that's, uh, those are scenes that I really enjoy because it so establishes those characters within the first 20 seconds of the film for me. Uh, and so those are a couple of mine. I don't want to steal too many more. Um, but Vanessa, did you have any favorite film, favorite scenes we haven't mentioned before or wanted to yeah. talk about? So one thing I thought was really cool was the, the whole thought that she could be in reality, but viewing another world and might. And so I I'm watching it. So, so specifically, the scene where she's in the car with her dad and she's touching the pin and she sees herself going through the wheat field really, really fast. Um, And then also when she's in her house, right. And she sees it and then she's hitting a wall, but it's not there in the Tomorrowland advertisement that she can see. And I thought that was really cool. And I don't know if you were guys were ever a kid where you would like take a mirror and you'd, you'd look down into it and like, think you were walking on the ceiling. Like that's, maybe that's just a me rural thing that we used to do in our house. But you know, we, we used to pretend like we were walking on the ceiling by looking in the mirror or like uh, (laughs) another dumb thing we did was we'd blindfold ourselves and see if we can figure out where in the house we were. So I just thought, oh, this is like a really cool thing. This makes me feel like I'm a kid again. And when's she going to hit something? Um, 
I really liked that scene a lot. And I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to She's going to run into something. So I, I liked that a lot. And I, um, I re- well, I don't want to steal someone else's scene. So I have another favorite, but I'll let someone else take a turn. Well, Dan, what what are your some of your favorite scenes? Um, I really like the scene in the comic book shop with yeah. Catherine Hahn and Keegan Michael. There's a lot of references to other movies, little music cues, little toys and everything. And so I think that's a really fun scene just because, you know, those two are both great and they're only in the movie for a minute and a half or something, but it kind of, they bring a lot of, a lot of comedy to that. So I I really like that whole moment. I also like the scene after they get, when they get into George Clooney's house and then have to escape and all his weird gadgets where they basically get in the bathtub and then like the weird androids are coming up and there's something that almost looks like a little mini stargate that she puts on someone's head and everything. There's just a lot to that. So some of those kind of fit more with that kind of futuristic aesthetic. I mean, kind of in a retro future way. I think those are really fun. And um, I also want to mention the World's Fair. One more thing. I did hear that they shot at the Carousel of Progress. And I've never seen the scene. I think it's out there. But they actually were going to have another scene where the kid goes in and sees that. And that would have been fun. I know they shot at Walt Disney World. It was a big deal they made about it. So while I reiterate, I love the World's Fair scene. I w- it would be, would have been fun if there was just a little bit more but I'm sure they cut it because they didn't want us to non Disney crazy world's fair people to get stuck there and kind of lose them right at the beginning. Yeah. Well, even some, some crazy Disney fans, they lost towards the <laughs> beginning. Uh, that would be Brett. And uh, so do you have a scene you want to mention here? If not, we can transition into kind of the, what didn't work and what didn't work for the general audience section of the show here. Okay. Um, do they end up in the Eiffel tower in this film? Yeah. They do. Um, okay, yeah. I thought that was this. I enjoyed that, you know, mainly, you know, wild goose case, wild goose chase through, you know, you know that. And I'm like, it's actually pretty straight up, too. It's not like bent to a side. Or <laughs> it's anything. not like, yeah. So, yeah, it's not like Soren. So, you know, it depends on where you sit. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed, I, uh, I enjoyed. Why don't we go ahead and talk about the maybe some... I enjoyed the production design? Yeah, maybe we could, could talk about some of the critiques of the film. And, and I think that that starts with the writing, right? Um, I, I think that even, even someone like me who thinks this is an underrated film and thinks that you should go back and revisit this, and it will be coming to Disney Plus if you go there. They have some licensing agreements still with old streamers that uh, it says, I believe, September is uh, when Tomorrowland will come become available to with Disney the extras, Plus. Should go I don't and, have to pay $19, yay. Yeah, and then you can watch all those extras, yeah. But Brett... Uh, Talk to us about, because Brad Bird made some of your favorite Pixar movies, um, and we all love the Iron Giants. Uh, he's an amazing director when it comes to animation. He has done a Mission Impossible film as well, so it's not like this is his first uh, live action directing shot either. So your, what are your thoughts on the, the writing of it, uh, direction of it? Basically, where are your critiques there? I think it's probably best if we ever want Brad Bird as a guest on our show that I never say anything about this. <laughs> it's I funny because I would ask him specifically about nice, this movie. If you can't say something nice, I I think when you were talking about you know the parts that were preachy, um, I don't have to be hit on the head to get it. 
you know, and there, and I still haven't forgiven uh, Steven Spielberg for um, Empire of the Sun, nor will I. And I had a similar moment with this. I'm like going, stop it. I get it. You don't have to do that. Or Forrest Gump, Robert, Robert Zemeckis and Forrest Gump. I'm like going, I get it. You know, I, I, you don't stop it, stop it. And it just, it offends my intellectual self when these things happen. (laughs) I'm like going, stop it, stop it. I get it. I got it. I got it a while ago. And now you're just, you know, and it's getting preachy and not in a way that is effective for this viewer. And as and a these counterpoint, are the kind things I'm saying about this film. As a counterpoint to you as a viewing experience, and I'm not saying that your experience is wrong or that your opinion is invalid. What I'm saying is that I saw this as more of a, um, we are, and, and maybe it's because I'm living here, we're in the middle, of, still middle of a global pandemic, end of a global pandemic, whatever of a global pandemic. Uh, we had a contentious election cycle. We've had a contentious four decade, uh, four years to a decade here. Um, and I think we need that shot of optimism. And I think- uh, It doesn't it, come it, in this film. I'm it like, does oh, to me. It does no. to me. And, you know- The I, last I'm, five seconds or, you know, the last scene is no, the only Casey's thing that was valid. No, Casey's whole character is this Ugh. idea of- of optimistic youth looking for tomorrow. Maybe it's the millennial in me. I don't know, but it's, it's I'm like going, something. You know, I'm an extremely optimistic person. I, you know, I am a very optimistic person. So maybe that's where I'm like going, you're preaching to someone who already gets this. I'm like going, I'm a pragmatic optimist. You know, I, I see, you know, I see how optimism works and, you know, the benefits of that. So I get the message of the film but I'm like going, I, again, I, it was just heavy handed for me. And again, I didn't get to see enough Tomorrowland. These are the things that didn't work. And yeah, we'll have more, we'll have, I have a few more opinions that I will save for outside the pod. <laughs> well, Dan, save me here. Uh, what are some ideas or where are you at on this concept of, is the, the message too heavy handed or, or are there other things about the film that you would have liked to see changed? Uh, what is it that you uh, would have liked to see in this movie that you didn't see? Um, you know, I think that the point about it being a little preachy is I understand there are a few moments where, you know, even I like the two wolves idea, but it is said like five times. So, you know, I talked to on the podcast to um, John Walker, who was a producer that works with Brad bird a few years ago. And he was really candid about, he thinks they ran out of time that they wanted, that they were rushing to meet a date and that, they were trying, they kept changing how the intro worked and how the plot worked. At one point, George Clooney was showing up at the very end and not as early, and they kept changing it. And I think even he didn't totally feel like that it totally clicked. Like they had they they had too many different things they were trying to do and did the best they could. He also thought with the marketing that um they tried that they were too secretive in the marketing that people thought there was going to be a big twist. And also Damon Lindelof was one of the writers along with Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof was known so much at the time for lost, like you mentioned him earlier and everyone kind of expected some big 
crazy twist at the end that never came. Instead, people were kind of like, oh, that's the twist. So I think I can understand the um, response. The other thing, kind of more with what you asked about optimism, is that there's kind of a, a pushback against Brad Bird you know, for a lot of his films that he's very like, has this idea and I am not an expert on Ayn Rand or on this ultra conservative idea of certain people being special and others aren't, but that's been a real criticism against this movie and against Brad Bird. And I understand it because there is this idea of what if the smartest thinkers in the world got together, what would happen to, I just, me personally, I don't really read it that way just as my own personal reaction. And I think a lot relates to what you talked about at the end, Brett, where basically you get to the end and the people they're showing that are the dreamers are the artists, the people that are working in alternative energy, the scientists, all these people that I think, yes, those are the people that I want to be leading us forward. So that's where, but that's, again, that's the last few minutes. So if you're if the you've lost if the movie's been lost by that point, if people are just feeling like they're being pounded on by the message or thinking that they don't agree with the idea of being optimistic, that's not going to help. And I think too is that um, even though I love the movie and have watched it multiple times and are into it there are things you have to forgive in the movie or just recognize are not perfect. But again, it's everyone, every person kind of has their own view on, um, you know, I, I think if you love a movie, you're going to forgive flaws. And if you don't, you're mm-hmm. going to say it's going to hit you like, like with Brett. And I totally understand it. I've heard the <laughs> reactions. It's just, um, I think I'm willing to forgive more because I identify so strongly with parts of the message. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Vanessa, your thoughts on um, what didn't quite work? Um, so I, I don't have a problem with the optimism. I'm fine with it. My, my um, takeaway is a little more on the journey of how we get there and having the risks and the um, the emotional development, like, that fleshed out more so when i was watching this movie i was confused a little by what it wanted to be it it felt like okay it wants to be like dan said a road movie okay now it wants to be uh the the matrix she's the chosen one okay now it wants to be the terminator which don't like that and uh and now and then they're in paris and the the eiffel towers okay now it's national treasure and you know finding something that the inventors left before and i'm like what is this movie and then it's then it's flying into space and now we're going through a oh like a a a hole or something i'm like what does this movie want to be and even i do have a little problem with the the clock in the beginning because it with that scene setting up of you think you're gonna go back to uh, George Clooney and Casey and you know there's going to be something revealed that's going to get them out of this situation and it's really it, it doesn't really give you the the payoff that I think it's going to give you know it's like if like if they found like a magical key okay now we got the magical you know it's it seems like there should have been something bigger other than oh we just need to be more inclusive and and 
keep dreaming. You know, that the payoff just wasn't quite enough for the for the setup. It, I'm I'm okay with ending if the, the opening hand set up with like the clocks clicking down, you know. I, I just thought it was gonna be something a little more dramatic. So um and and I don't even know, do we ever go back to them with the clock at the end of the movie? I'm like, where's the clock? <laughs> It's yeah, the it, end of the movie. Where did it go? <laughs> I, I guess you're you're supposed to assume that they saved the clock. They saved I it. I guess, so. but it's like it's such a huge part of the set because it's it's st- they stop and start and stop and start. And I get that's part of the humor and the gag, but that's also oh. the build up. Right? Let me do it. <laughs> okay. We heard I'll yours. <laughs> I have another thing to say, and I'll shut up now. You have to stop and let me go. Okay, so um, yeah, so it's it, it that's also part of the drama building, and I just didn't think that they circled back to it in the best way. Which, which, like Dan said, maybe had to do with time. I mean, it's not like writing a fantastic story is the easiest thing in the world, especially with all these moving parts. So I feel for them, and I still enjoyed the movie. Um, it just there were things that were a little strange to me and 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 like that kind of affected the pacing a bit of yeah. what I was expecting. And I think a critique could be the the length of the film for sure, being at two hours, maybe that um, like you said, I want to get back to Tomorrowland. Brett, what was your comment before we go into some wrap-ups? Well, Brett, Vanessa is absolutely correct in all of that. So I was certainly not naysaying any of that. I think the point is that it's so convoluted it doesn't know what it wants to be. Yeah. You know, and that has to yeah. do with so I mean so that goes back to the director and an intention. And I'm like going, you're given lots of money you know, and you see this time frame. what can you get accomplished in that amount of time? And, you know, and you, and you can be, films can be preachy and all this. And I don't even think that that was my biggest takeaway. It was what is happening here. I don't have a clue, you know, and I mean, it's just like, what is this movie about? I have a problem with uh, with films that don't have, and they don't even have to be linear. You know, they don't have to be linear. They just have to make sense. And you know, and it just, I'm like, well, what is again, Vanessa? You're so correct. What does this film want to be? Obviously, I I, Obviously. I think um, <laughs> as our as our wrap up uh, to this, and uh, again, this is a film that. Um, was made, Dan mentioned it earlier, about $200 million. Add-in marketing, somewhere closer to $300 million. It only made about $209 million worldwide, 93 of that coming domestically. So this was by, it was not a successful film. Uh, I do think that there are people, and again, listening back to your podcast today, so many people made reference to this film in what they would like to see in the design of Tomorrowland um, because there are pieces of this film that stuck with people. And so I'm, I don't mean to exclude you from this, Brett, but if you don't have an answer to this, that's totally fine. But what would be a rapid uh, kind of fire? Give me your elevator pitch as to why people should watch this movie, especially when it becomes available, say on Disney plus in September, Dan, do you have a, an elevator pitch for that? I'd say it's reputation as a complete flop and disaster is overblown. There are elements that, that you're really going to enjoy. The production design's amazing. And I think um, it may hit us differently this year, even than it did in 2015. 
there's something there, and especially at home, a lot less pressure. I think that a lot of people may connect with it stronger than they would suspect. It um, It's a fun adventure. It's a road movie. There's more there than you might think. All right. Vanessa, do you have an elevator pitch you want to give? Sure. Well, first of all, I agree with Dan. And uh, he mentioned The Haunted Mansion earlier. And for me, that movie is way more of a kind of a cheesy flop of a movie but you you kind of know that going into it that it's, this isn't going to be that great so you have fun with it and i think with this film there are so many really good parts um especially with the production design that y- you feel probably more disappointed on the parts that don't work well so i would say go into this movie knowing that there might be things that don't work for you but appreciate it for what it is and and where it could possibly go beyond just this film that we've seen um and and the te- technology really holds up and gosh if we can get that uh drop moment in small worlds that's gonna be, be life-changing cool. <laughs> <That'd> be <cool. laughs> didn't they do that in pirates yeah, sorry. okay with it being so. in small world too okay so. brett did you have something you'd like to say here you don't need well, to if it is going to be on Disney Plus and there's the extras, I I that is great. I get to watch the extras. A lot of the times, you know, I like watching the behind the scenes, and I've said this a million times. I like the, you know, I like the making ofs and all of that. So I will be watching that and I will give it another try. I certainly will give it another try. But I really kind of want to see how they created this and i wasn't going to pay 19.99 to do that so now i don't have to thank you so i can watch it and give it another chance you know give it another 20 minutes my thought uh my thought on this is that there's a common critique about tomorrowland as a land within the parks is that it's completely outdated and uh it, it never seems to be able to catch up but in my mind uh, Tomorrowland should always be about the future that never was that we dream that it would be. And uh, in that, I think that this m- movie does succeed in allowing us to see even briefly that optimistic view of the future and how we through our collective actions can try to achieve that goal. Um, whether it's a little clunky and how it's delivered, I think the overall message that we could um, come together, we could bring our a collective effort together and we could change the world. I think that that is a message that is delivered, uh, even if a little heavy handed. Um, but it is delivered in this film. So that's why you should go check this out uh, in September. Now, uh, I we have taken a lot of Dan's time. You've been very gracious here. Uh, we thank you so much for coming on. But before we go, I do want to ask one more question because again, we record a lot of these in advance. So this is going to be old news and we might even have some new news by the time this is released. But we did get a huge announcement for us parks fans that Disney plus is finding a home for us too. Uh, so we have John Favreau who has just been crushing it with the Mandalorian and building the star Wars universe. Of course, we've known Kevin Feige for years now as part of the Marvel cinematic universe now we have ronald moore who is coming in and going to design essentially uh almost like the mythos of the parks and magic kingdom and some of those mythologies that we've heard about in imagineering 
and uh, elsewhere, but he's going to bring a series of that to Disney Plus. And so I guess I just want to ask, are you looking forward to that, Dan? That might be a loaded question, but do you think it can be successful in that this was almost an attempt at that in a theatrical way, as opposed to a series um, trying to bring more of the park's story to life on the screen? Do you think that this kind of a show could be successful on Disney Plus, and are you looking forward to it? I think it could largely because of Ronald Moore. I love Battlestar Galactica. He was also involved with Star Trek, but I also, he's doing a show now called For All Mankind, which is all about an alternate history if the Russians had gotten to the moon first and what might have happened. And just seeing that and seeing how it's kind of connected to real life, but also spins off in all these weird directions. And the production design is incredible. I don't know what Apple plus is spending on that show, but I think about that. And I think if you're going to have someone that can kind of look at the parks and use the parks, but create something new and kind of odd and different, but also sort of realistic, not a kingdom keepers, no offense to those books, but idea where it's more fantastical. Is there a way to kind of do it where it's fun, but also has some weight to it? Because For All Mankind has some weight to it, I will say. It's not like just a fantasy. Um, I think it could be cool. I hope it happens because I get excited. There's stuff like Guillermo del Toro is going to do Haunted Mansion. No, he's not. Or there's going to be a Space Mountain, maybe, or Big Thunder. I hope this actually comes through because a lot of development announcements don't always happen. So I'm kind of getting a little muted because I know how these things kind of go sometimes. Yeah, and I, I had that with Kingdom Keepers, actually. I Again, you know, those are geared towards middle schoolers. So I get the... Uh, the bit about, you know, we, hopefully it's a little deeper than those went, but I, um, in really in my mind, I never saw how this would work. Uh, but one of my uh, favorite uh, podcasters and uh, lesser extent, his directorial uh, efforts, but I love Kevin Smith and he was signed on to do kingdom keepers. Uh, and then that fell through with Disney plus. So um, who knows if this will actually happen, but I do think it'll be cool to see that brought to screen. And there's so many neat stories out there. They're, they're saying that the first one up would be the society of explorers and adventurers. Um, and that is in and of itself is such a cool storyline and so many different ways you could go look at the success of the Jumanji films, the remakes. And I feel like you could um, get a bit of that out of that. Uh, and there's there's things that you can definitely see happening on Disney Plus that would be really cool. And I would definitely second checking out For All Mankind. As much as I say everyone needs to drop anything that they're doing right now and go watch Ted Lasso, uh, there are other shows that are worth it on Apple TV Plus as well. And For All Mankind is definitely one of them. Um, since I opened that up, Brett and Vanessa, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add there? Or what do you think? You looking forward to it? We'll cover I'm it, of course, it. once it happens. Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm I'm for anything, you know. Let's just see what happens. Right, All right, Brett. I'm sure I'll love it. <laughs> Who knows? After today, I love everything. So. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much again for joining us uh, for the show today. Can you tell everyone where to go find Tomorrow Society one more time? 
Sure. You go to tomorrowsociety.com. I'm also on Twitter at Tomorrow Society, Facebook and Instagram at Tomorrow Society. I'm on all the various podcast providers. Also have a YouTube channel where sometimes I'm posting some old home movies that I have, which is really fun. Also called Tomorrow Society. And I also, I mentioned it briefly, but if you like Tomorrowland or don't, I did do an interview with the producer where we talked a lot about it a few years ago. So that, that was episode 60, but you can find it on the website. That's awesome. So definitely check that out as a compliment to this episode as well. And, and check out that podcast. It's so great and well done. You're also a great follow on Twitter. I know that that's how we've interacted the most um, is you're, you're very up on your stuff on Twitter. I really enjoy uh, checking you out there too. So thank you. If you are a fan of Tomorrow Society and you're checking us out for the first time, uh, thank you for listening. And you can go back and listen to a lot of our episodes. If you follow us on Beyond the Mouse on any podcast platform that you'd like, We are also available on nprillinois.org as well. And you can follow us on social media, Beyond the Mouse Podcast on Facebook, also Beyond the Mouse Pod on Instagram, and now Beyond Mouse on Twitter. Uh, You inspired us. We finally got a Twitter account for the show as well. So we're growing that and happy to join the Diz Twitter conversations as crazy as they are sometimes when you're diving into the controversies that people seem to get worked up about. There are lots of tweets about barges in uh, in episodes Epcot right now uh, as we're speaking today. So, but thank you again, Dan. uh, And thank you for all that content you're putting out into the world. It just is wonderful to have other perspectives and interviews and so many cool things to listen to. So thank you so much. Thank you. And it sounds like just judging by some of the guests you've had that, that um, your show is right there. I'm really jealous of some of the people we talked with and thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So for Beyond the Mouse, I'm Craig. And I'm Dan. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Thanks so much again. That was great. Of course, you're always welcome to come back on. It would be a lot of fun to have you again and and actually talking about the parks and stuff like that sometime too. Yeah, anything. I'm really a positive person. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I was trying to, I'm like going, oh gosh, I was kind of, I was trying to be Switzerland, but apparently I cannot be Switzerland. You were, I could tell you were holding back a few times, but no, that's (laughs) I I meant it seriously. I was. Uh, No, anytime, you know, I'll talk about, I'll ramble about whatever. Yeah. All right. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day.